Kennedy Street, please visit kennedystreetcio.org. Recovery is possible. This week, I'm going live, fresh, without saying we're going live. So, hi, everybody. My name's Claire Kennedy, and welcome to our Wednesday Recovery Talks. Um, so, for those of you who don't know who I am, I am the CEO and founder of Kennedy Street. And, excuse my phone, making a peeping noise. I will turn that onto silent. Um, yeah, we run a very small... Um, recovery charity based in Brighton um, and we have a national reach thanks to COVID. Um, what's emerged for us as a charity because of COVID is we now run a national recovery helpline where we offer support and signposting to anyone who's interested in recovery um, and we connect people um, to resources and support that's available, freely available, privately available or you know anything that you're looking for will help you find the right resources in your area that can help you to start this amazing journey of recovery and each week on our recovery talks we invite fabulous guest speakers um from various um projects and um from various um walks of life really um that have got um something to do with recovery so um yeah that's me I'm going to introduce you to my gorgeous husband, who's going to uh, introduce you a little bit more to our wonderful, and I would say wonderful, I'll tell you more why she's so wonderful later on, but to our wonderful guest speaker who's with us today. So I'll hand over to Kev. Over to you, Kev. Hi, guys. I hope you're all well and keeping yourself safe in this terrible, terrible pandemic we're into at the minute. My name's Kevin Kennedy uh, and I am the patron of Kennedy Street. Uh, if you are listening to this on the podcast, uh, if you need to put a, a, a face to the name, I did play Curly Watts in Coronation Street for many, 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 many years. So now you have sort of a, a face to put to the, to the voice. Today's guest uh, is I owe a great deal to, a, a personal massive debt of gratitude. Uh, uh, her name was uh, her name is Wynne Parry, and uh, I first met Wynne twenty odd years ago when I first got sober. And I have to tell you, I didn't like her one bit when I first met her. In fact, she was my number one hate person, and the reason for that is because she told me the truth, and uh, and I didn't like that at all. However, uh, after I over overcame that, and we are now firm friends, and, and not only do I owe her an awful lot um i think there's an awful lot of people out there who are uh, an awful lot as well she is a superwoman of recovery a superwoman um she she doesn't blow smoke up your bottom i can tell you that she tells you the truth uh and thank thank the lord for that um so without further ado i'm going to introduce the amazing wonderful Win Parry, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you very much. Well, good morning, uh, Kevin, and good morning, Claire, and good morning, everybody out there. And, you know, not much to have to follow that, is it, with that build-up? But uh, everything that Kevin has said is true. He didn't like me at the beginning because he didn't like to hear the truth. 
But what I have found out, Kevin, in my long experience, 30 odd years of experience in the profession, is the people that hate me most at the beginning, love me most when they've got into recovery. Um, and of course, not liking the truth is, is, is the fundamental symptom of addiction. And it is the, the, the topic I think would be quite good to talk about today, which is called denial. You know, yeah. and, and that's, that's, everyone's familiar, I think, with that term. Um, and I can remember your denial, Kevin. I can remember it, you wriggling with mortification at, at, at not being able to justify or rationalize or minimize the consequences of your drinking, which were horrendous. You know, I can remember you being, I remember seeing you across the car park in my office, looked through the window, and, and you, you were slumped with your arms across people's shoulders to have to come into the, into the hospital to, to save your life, you were so ill. And you were still saying it was this, that and the other that you drank, that caused you to drink. The drink's all right if I can just sort out this stuff. Yeah, I, I I remember it well. Um, it's um, yeah, I did I did want to, to to blame everything else, but but here's the thing that's about denial that's always puzzled me, uh, and I suspect may puzzle a lot of people. You see, intellectually and deep down, uh, the evidence was overwhelming, and I I understood that. My drinking wasn't normal. I understood that if I carried on, um, then the death or worse. Um, I understood all that on an intellectual level because most addicts, I, in my experience, I find are not stupid. They know deep down that it's wrong. But here's the thing. I couldn't grasp it emotionally. I could not grasp it on that level. Uh, so I wanted to know why is that? Why is it that most people know they know deep down that if they keep going, everything is going to fall apart and it's going to be death. They understand that on that level, but why can't they? Why can't I get it emotionally at the beginning? And, and what you're voicing, Kevin, you, you know, re recalling that in yourself, the frustration in your voice and exasperation with yourself. Why did I keep? not not uh, engaging with that what was obvious to me and everybody else but denying it and and when you look you know that that's doing that to you but you drink you would drink on that and get rid of those whatever disturbance emotional disturbance what you drink on it again and put it aside because you needed you know the feeling that the the feeling the alcohol would ch would change that feeling it would put it away for now I don't have to look at it it life's all right again I've got my drink but for the people around you for Claire uh, and and family members seeing you waste away before their eyes and you know all addicts they change physically um, mentally they're 
emotional abuse to others is indescribable. You know, and many family members or, or, or significant people to the addict will end up in hospital long before the addict does because they've become they've, they've lost touch with reality because the addict's denial has convinced them that they, they're the problem, not the addict. Do, do you remember that, Claire? Did yeah. you have any experience of that? Absolutely. Gosh, yeah. I mean, and I think the fact of the matter is, is for me as a family member, I was probably in, maybe I don't think there are depths to denial, but I think I was in as much denial as uh, as Kevin was, because I desperately didn't want um, a husband to have that that had an alcohol problem. I really didn't. It, it, you know what? At the time, if you just said to me, um, "Your husband's a mass murderer," I probably would have been able to take that better. But in my heart of hearts, the, the shame and the guilt and the remorse and the horror, and and I and I can say that honestly now, um, and the stigma that came with the the, the word alcoholic you know it was just it was just too horrifying to bear so I just kept myself in a really what I thought was a safe place and tried to fix instead but the denial was immense it is and, it, and it's understandable isn't it when you see throughout that the the the, the, the active addiction Kevin was very functional he, he was he was highly functional he performed before millions of people uh, uh, every day no one knew what happened when he left the studios or what had been happening before he came to the studios and it's that that part of denial where well you know I, i'm able to work i've never i'm never i don't miss a day's work people will say uh, look look at this, you know, I'm being offered more opportunities. It can't be that bad. It isn't that wrong. So, yeah, the you know, the denial in the family. And I remember having a conversation with Kevin's mother when he was first admitted to the hospital, as I have done with many mothers of other patients who've come into the hospital, absolutely adamant that I'd got it wrong, that, that, that my son could not be an alcoholic um, and is not, you know, um, depression, whatever. One mother was happy for her son to be diagnosed as a schizophrenic, which he wasn't, but he, he got hallucinations because of his addiction, um, but not, not an addict. So the family members suffer so much from denial, not only family members, but, you know, those around them and, Look at A&E, for example, how they will, uh, you know, spend hours and hours of, of time and their skills on saving somebody's life from a condition maybe like esophageal varices, where the esophagus bursts through use of alcohol and they bleed from every orifice and these people it's every every hand in the a and e has got to got to be attentive to that person and and they'll get them off to um 
intensive care, keep them. They're healed. They go out. They'll be told the cause of it. Don't don't do it because you're lucky you didn't die. Most people die from this. A month later, they're back in. You know, and the exasperation and anger that the clinicians feel is understandable, isn't it? All that they see is why, why, why do they, why do they need to just gratify themselves when the cost of it to themselves and others is so enormous? Because most people have, you know, not so bad these days, abstinence is more accepted, but most people saw alcoholism as self-induced and, and self-gratification. Employees find it uh, uh, bewildering that somebody comes to work, you know, the tie over here, stinking of alcohol. They say, no, I've not had a drink. You know, their eyes are whirling, not had a drink. I must admit, really that, mm, I, I, I mean, I, I was high functioning and I was keeping it all together, which 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 takes its toll. But okay. and on the surface. On yeah. the surface, yeah. on the surface, yeah. But I, it, when I was in rehab, and this, as you said before, you know, you take a drink to get rid of those anxieties, the fact that your drinking isn't normal. Uh, but even when I was in there, and I've been in the priory, I don't know, about a week, and I was still fighting it. I, I remember still thinking this, you know, I'll have to just go along with this because, you know, there's nothing wrong with me. And I think this is me personally. It was the threat of aftercare, the threat of uh, prolonged uh, care that I'd have to go in for six months to somewhere, which which was I was told, and I think that was the the moment, not the penny drops, but I think the moment when I, I thought I've got to take this, I've got to take this seriously because I don't want to go to this place for six months. I just don't want to go, so it means I'm going to have to knuckle down. I'm going to have to have to listen to what I've, I'm being told, and I'm going to have to play the game i'm gonna have to almost fake it to make it which is not a phrase i particularly like but in those early days i thought I've, i don't want to be in here for six months or somewhere else in some house somewhere i just don't want to do it so i'm gonna have and to you, do it you know you, you that's why most people go into treatment on you know over all the years i you know worked at the Priory Hospital over 25 years in that facility in England. And um, I think I could count probably, probably about eight people came through in there that said, I want to stop drinking. I desperately want to stop drinking because it, it's, I'm done for. It's, I, don't, I can't do it on my own, but I want to do it. Other people came because that it was an ultimatum. Like yours, if I don't get it here, they'll send me off somewhere else for six months. For some people, it could be I'll leave the marriage if you if you don't get better. Um, employers, you'll lose your job. Uh, children, you know, disgusted with you. You won't see the grandchildren. Police. You, you might go to jail for this, so I'd better come into treatment and let them know I'm sorry. So for, oh, you know, 99.99% of people are in there because the alternative is too great.
And it's the first time that they have reached that point where the alternative to drinking has been better than continuing drinking. Which brings us on to the question you asked, Kevin, why? Why do, why do people deny it when, it when it's so obvious, you know? When they're standing there with their eyes spinning and, and the you know, fumes coming out the mouth, they say, no, I haven't been drinking. Um, and, and when you went into treatment, uh, yeah, the, the, the thing that started to happen to you was to attempt to uh, develop a connection between your intellectual understanding. Yes, this stuff is happening. Deep down, you've got that. Some part of your brain, you know exactly what you've done. And, and, and the, you've done everything to reduce it, but it's there. So the, the, the first stage of, of, of recovery is connecting that to the emotions, as you said. But the reason why people find it difficult to do that and, and even will go through treatment not yet reaching that point is, be, is the fear, terrifying prospect of not having that familiar substance or activity that's going to change the way they feel that will leave them with a huge empty abyss, a cavern, a black space. That's why people drink to change those feelings. And that's why they're afraid of stopping because they know what that's like. You know what that's like, Kevin. Yeah, I do. I was, I mean, it was all about fear. It's everything about even recovery is about fear. I was scared to death of the consequences of of my uh drinking and i was scared to death when i was in recovery of going back drinking uh, i mean thankfully i have to add this as well to to people who are listening that goes away it's not it's not a life sentence but for for me um i was i was just terrified all the time um and 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 that is it's, it's not no way to live. And that lasted a good six months, maybe possibly a year into my recovery. And, and the reason for that, Kevin, why that lasts is because your natural emotional resources have been very, you know, if we look at what age you started drinking or using addictive be be behaviours, and there can be many, not just alcohol, you know, drugs, sex, gambling, pornography, compulsive spending, shoplifting. They're all intensive activities that change the way you feel. And there can be a, a number of those that are people are engaged in, not just one, one aspect of, of addiction. Um, <clears throat> but but when that, the fear that goes with that, that, yeah, the... Um, the consequences are horrific, but the prospect of not having it is is even worse. So I have to carry on, and that denial. It, it it's there to protect your addiction. You you become the best liar 
and the greatest manipulator in the world, which is unnatural. When people get into recovery, they, they show themselves as, as being really people of integrity. I mean, there's a few people who fraud, but the majority, great integrity and, uh, and a desire to live well with other people. Great work ethics, all of that. Um, and, and they're able to engage in that. But the, the emotional um, immaturity that's evident when people stop drinking, because the addictive behavior has been their emotional regulator. It, it's fixed the way you feel and your natural re, uh, resources have become in remission and brutalized so that when you first stop drinking you hit that space that you were frightened of hitting except this time you have got people around you who can encourage you and help you to understand that it's not going to be like that providing you keep resisting the urge to act out addictively because your brain needs to get a new message. We don't, we don't change our feelings like that anymore. We've got other coping mechanisms. We're learning new strategies. I've, I, I can go, I've gone through a week without having a drink and this happened and that happened and I've not needed to drink. That's built up a layer of emotional resources. And, and as that continues, the, 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 your tank gets fuller and fuller and fuller. And, and then you're starting to believe at the end of the year that when people have said to you that if you keep doing what you're doing, the desire and compulsion to drink will leave you. Not me, you say, not me. I, I can never happen. It's always going to be a struggle with me. I like it too much, too important, is what we believe for you. And eventually it leaves you because of what? Because of the emotional resources you've been building. You don't have to drink. And the more your brain understands that you don't have to drink to feel just okay, the less the thought of drinking, the, the natural um resources in in managing life's difficulties become easier because you 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 face the consequences of what will happen when it's a drink you know in in treat if if you drink in treatment you know that first stage that you go through where uh, the the counselors are facilitating that breaking of your of your denial where you're asked to come up with uh, you know, you write them in your room, you know, you write a, do a big assignment on it where your drinking has affected your life or the lives of others. And and most people just say, oh, uh, yeah, it was drink driving. You know, they don't consider that they were left in charge of children. And if a, if a fire had broken out, they were incapable of, of dealing with it or, or getting emergency treatment. So you go into all of that, the, your loss of self-respect, the self-respect of others, all of the consequences of your drinking, and it's horrifying. 
and 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 you you're having to say this without any because i did that because i did it because i drank not for any other reason um and and you know um round about your time in treatment it was it was becoming more acceptable to uh, accept that it, that people needed to practice abstinence to recover that they couldn't ever control their drinking this was the one aspect of alcoholism that and other addiction that once you have become addicted you can you can't control it you can't have a bit here and a bit there it, it, it's all or nothing so until then the fashion in treatment was uh, harm reduction and controlled drinking and and that was a genuine belief and it was an industry around it and you know i can remember going to conferences talking about addiction and being jeered and laughed at because you can't expect you can't ask people to stop drinking you know you can't ask people to give it up so it, you know that was that was brought into and it was let's look at what the reasons for they drink for the for the way they drink was the fashion let's look at look at the reasons that they drink and for many reasons you know the life was okay for them they couldn't find real reasons okay maybe they didn't get on the wife with the wife every day but it wasn't any reason to drink the way they did you know so it was you know it was it was not it, it's easier i think today because the concept of abstinence is much more accepted generally and i'm sure the viewers will be perhaps hopefully agreeing to this that that they have a, a, a good understanding of, of abstinence and the need for it in addiction but when you came into treatment it was not that popular um <clears throat> so it hard to, to get to that first aspect of treatment where, as you said, to connect the intellect with the emotional consequences of that. And, and, it, and it would get to a stage where people had been angry and, and maybe asked, no, you need to do this again because you're not, you know, you're not really getting to it. You're skirting around it. Um, and and you know in a, in one to one facilitation you would you would bring out more in a person say now come on write that down and present it to the group uh, until hopefully they would reach a point where that happened and it could be well like World War Three going off for some people because that realization of it that moment of truth when 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 the uh, consequences of the addiction outweighed the benefits it is it's hideous it's horrible what, yeah, it, it takes time i mean i remember thinking that i would this is the insanity of it i remember thinking i don't want to be labeled an alcoholic i would rather be labeled insane uh or mad it seemed to be more bohemian more rock and roll to be Oh yeah, he's mental. Uh, rather than admit the fact that 
I, I was just a, like the same as any other old. Just didn't want. I'd rather I'd rather be told I was crazy, than 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 admit to the fact I, I was an alcoholic and all the kind of the shame and the guilt and the murkiness of it that's added to that. Um, and it did take time for me, and it did, and that's why I'm saying it was very scary. It was because of fear, Kevin, wasn't it? It was fear of having to give it up. Yeah, absolutely. I didn't want to give it up. I'd rather say, oh, he's crazy and he drinks rather than he's an alcoholic. You can't help it. So that protects your ability to drink. You mm. protected it. And it's that need for people to protect the addiction that is denial. It's mm. fear-driven. But I can't live without it. If they don't know. They don't know how it would be for me if I didn't have this way of changing the way I felt. Mm. They don't know. And and it's the biggest mystery, you know, in society. You know, I, I know I've lectured to psychiatrists, practice nurses, nurses, all sorts of medical people, and they have not understood that. Mm. They've not understood why. I remember you told me once this was this. It's, it's not the exact moment, but something clicked definitely. Where I think I, I don't know if it was yourself or one of your colleagues said to me that uh, they go to give talks in prisons and that they say to the the people in the prisons, "All right, put your hand up if you're in here because of of, of something that happened when you were drinking or under the influence of drugs or whatever." And a vast amount of people put their hands up and said, "All right." What's the first thing you're going to do when you get out? And they said, I'll go for a drink or, or use drugs or whatever. And for me, that was like not in a eureka moment, but certainly the, la the, the first brick in the wall to me to say, wait a minute, this is really, really insane. And you're true. You're, you're right. You know, uh, 10 years in prison, some of them, Kevin, people I've known. And, and, They've drunk, you know, been met them in prison and and then they've, they've contacted me and said, I had a drink on the train going to, from Manchester to where, where they lived. You know, and so that temporary insanity, because when people are well, they're very healthy, very well, very sane when they get into recovery. But those episodes of which to the to everyone else is is nuts isn't it that what's the you know you must be mad you know you've done 10 years you've got a good setup outside opportunities for work good they know they've got support from the probation or social services family <clears throat> and they, they still believe that they can just have a couple of drinks when there's a question I wanted to ask so so often um I come I come into contact with people in in the community or you know via the helpline or whatever who've had a period of abstinence and they have had some good recovery and then um something happens in their life and they might stop going to meetings or they might detach from their support structures or they might move country or they might move city or even job if they've had a good support structure at work. And they go back. They go back and they start believing again 
the denial. Can you tell us a little bit more about how that comes about and what, what's going on there? That's relapse. Yeah. We, we'd consider that a relapse, yeah. Um, <clears throat> well, it is the denial comes back and it is that that person will never have fully accepted not they've admitted at, at for a period of time that the drinking was the cause of all of their problems and they needed to abstain from it they'll have admitted that but they've never accepted it mm. which is how do i go about what do i do what do i have to do I admit alcohol caused it, so what do I have to do not to go back to it? And they can do it for 20 years, I've known people. But their quality of recovery has not been a joyful, spontaneous, uh, good uh, quality of life where they've had consideration for their own self-care and the care of others and and and, and done really good in life. They've, they've, all, they've been miserable people or how, you know, it's, it's all right, but never fully, never fully engaged in their emotional spontaneity. They've got some emotional ability to manage life without drinking but really, it's been hard work. Mm. Been hard work, you know. So that they and 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 a lot of these people can will have gone to meetings for twenty years or, but you know, I've been to AA meetings, you know, because uh, for the information of the viewers, I am in recovery myself. Forty years ago, I got my recovery in AA. And thank God for the people in that room and for the program that was presented to me. And it was that that led me into the profession. So a lot of gratitude for me for AA and those people. Um, and, and I can remember in my uh, times that I was in AA, because of uh, professional regulations, I don't go to AA now because it would not be good for the people who know me there. Or I wouldn't be able to share freely because they see me as a psychotherapist. Not as wind parry, you know. Uh, so that that's just that little bit aside. But I've seen people in meetings, and you will have seen them. Been going for years, twenty years, you know. And and when you go, when I first started, now I thought, oh, why do they keep coming? You know, such miserable people, or they don't contribute, or they don't. But they keep going. Mm. Um, and it is the fear if I don't go they tell me I'll drink again, so I'll keep coming. But I'm not going to accept that I need to change. I need to use, I need to work the program that other people are, are working here who have lost the desire and compulsion to use alcohol or drugs or, or whatever. I, I don't want to be doing that. I, I'm not letting people in to me. I'll stop drinking. And I keep coming to AA, but that, that's the end of it. And they're, they're not happy people. They're not comfortable people in recovery. So that then, you know, one example I had, a guy, 25 years in recovery, and he said to his sons, um, 
no way I'll ever go back to drinking again. I want to go. There was a place in Spain, he said, where there was a village that had a particular red wine. He said, I've always thought about that red wine that was in that village. And the son said, I don't think that's a good way of spending your 25 years in recovery, is to go back to a place that you used to drink. He said, no, he said, okay. And he said, and I'm going to have one drink, you know. You'll have one glass. Because I'm over it now. I don't want to go back to it, but I'm over it. And he went back. And he had one, and he only had one drink there. But three weeks later, he'd convinced himself that didn't, nothing happened there. Had a drink. I'll see if they've got something like it in the supermarket. And I'll have another drink occasionally. Wow. I've cracked it. After 25 years. And within three weeks, he was back in for detox. Pandemonium broke out all again. Absolutely. Everything. Chaos. Physical health. So it, that uh, relapse comes from, from people who have never fully accepted the need to abstain from the addictive behaviour whatever it is. You know, with gamblers, for example, they'll never go back to reading the back page of the paper. Never go back to reading the football results or the, or, or the sport. They won't do that. A, a, a gambler in recovery. Yeah, it's too much of a trigger, isn't it? It's like they've accepted that that can't... Arouse the desire to gamble so they don't do it. You know, um, sex addicts learn, you know, sex. It's like sex eating disorders. Primary urges, you know, our midbrain, is, it drives us to eat and have sex to survive and re keep the human race going. But, you know, a person who becomes addicted to um, disordered eating or compulsive eating and or becomes addicted to pornography and sex, need to learn a healthy relationship with food or sex. That's abstinence. That's a different, you know, it's not start going without food, not going without sex, but it is how to learn an emotional engagement with food and sex rather than just using it to stuff yourself to a degree that you're sated and I can't feel anything. Yeah. So, so, yeah. So denial... Denial is, is conquerable, then. If a person is psychologically capable. So unless a person has got a personality disorder where they're unable to accept that there's anything flawed about them, that there's, that, but they're few. They're not many. They're not many. Also, when can we come? I know we touched on it, and I mean, I, I completely get what you're talking about. It, you know, it's like you said at the beginning, it's sort of accepting, admitting, and accepting is when the brain and the heart align, and that's when you get the real transformation, and that's when your life it becomes, you know, something that manageable. you can manage. Manageable. Yeah, at, normal. At, at least manageable. That's the worst bit. That's yeah. The lowest we can manage it. 
Yeah. And then we have all those other levels of, you know, the full emotional spectrum of life, which becomes revived in us when we stop the addictive behavior. It does take time, Kevin, a year. It can take more, but we can get there. And, and it can continue to, to revive until you've got this rainbow of emotions rather than just the red highs and the black lows of intensive addiction. Yeah. I do um, feel I have to actually intercede here and say, you know, for me, there is a there is a point that, that comes when it, everything kind of drops into place. So there's anyone listening who is, who is in denial you know, and are in are starting their recovery. Believe me when I tell you, it does. It all comes together. It all seems to make sense, um, and it, it'll be fine. And you will begin to recover. But the thing is, it's 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 a changeable feast. It's a movable feast. When you've just got over one kind of trigger, there's always something else that comes along. But again, and if you remember, Kevin, the trigger is the way you feel. It's always about the way you feel. That's the trigger. Yeah. Yeah. It, it might be a death, but it's the way you feel over that person's death. Yes. That's the trigger, the emotional aspect of the trigger. Sorry for interrupting you there. No, it's all right. It's all, you can interrupt me anytime you want, Win. What, what I'm saying, but I'm just putting it out there that there, you know, it does get better. It does get better. And there's more things that come along, but, but, but the, the next problem is easier to solve than the last one. Uh, yeah. and, and that's it keeps going. yeah and there's a saying Absolutely. isn't there? there's a saying in, in recovery which is you've got to give time time and i think you know from what both you and kev are saying is it's absolutely you know people often think it's the stopping drinking and drug taking that's the hard bit but actually it's the giving time time and hanging in there and getting to meetings and getting support and you know doing all of the things that you need to do to start to get well the length of time it takes for our emotional resources to be revived and, and we need help with that we need help to for people to able to help us to see attitudes that we've got that need to change you know um, emotional uh, triggers that we we bring on ourselves like stay keep it holding on to resentments against people you know we, we need somebody to say you can't afford that because it's too intent you know to, there's no end to it there's no solution to a resentment uh, you can resolve it you can, you can go and talk about it or just decide to let it go. But if you hold on to resentment, it'll over to overwhelm you. Yeah. yeah. So we can keep it around us yeah. to help us do that. Yeah. And I think the beautiful thing about recovery for me was you it, at the very beginning it was it was about keeping it simple and just listening to those people that had gone before me and trusting that what they were saying was true. And it was simple things for me that kept me sane, which was like that. A resentment is like drinking poison and expecting somebody else to die. And I thought, oh, my gosh, when somebody made it so simple and so sort of, you know, literal that I understood exactly what they meant. It was just, it was <laughs> mental. But, but uh, you know, the, the whole core of recovery is 
humility, which is not being sub it, it is humility is the opposite of arrogance, where people know everything. Humility is about being teachable mm. and becoming teachable. That's what at all human. I need to learn. Please teach me. And yeah. that's what acceptance is. What do I have to do to get well? What lengths do I have to go to to get like you and you and you and you? Yeah. And it is time. You know, and you know the, the length of time people have been actively addicted. Yeah, generations. And yet, you know, six months in, they're grumbling because they're not cured emotionally. Yeah, yeah it's so true. I mean, there's so many things that I would love to ask you. I mean, honestly, I think if you're happy to come back another time, you know, and you've got some free time, I'd love to talk about, you know, um, denial for the family as well. I know we touched it at the very beginning, and I think there isn't enough information out there about how um, the family can get a recovery of their own um, and how denial really keeps the family unwell. Um, so, you know, if, you, if you've if got time to touch on a little bit of that and how family members can start a journey of their own and, you know, where do they go? Who do they speak to? It's a good starting point. Well, you know, quite often because of the person's denial, family members actually take responsibility for them, themselves. You know, spouses will say, what was wrong with me as a husband or a wife? that my husband or wife needed to drink like this. And and actually, the addict will do a good job on convincing. You know, if, it was, if I had somebody else in my life, it would be different. Um, or you don't, you don't look after the house well enough, or why don't you look after the kids? So a spouse or children, adult, can feel guilt that they've had. You know, so, yeah, they do need to go to, you know, there's the sister... Uh, organization to AA and and NA and CA where, where family members can get their own help for the way that the addict's behavior has impacted on them and is still influencing them and and that can be very painful for family members also because during the um active phase of, a, 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 of an addict and living with that they've, they've taken over so much you know they have become very very much in charge of everything if needed to and and you know an addict will come out of treatment and you know after a month or so all bright-eyed and bushy-tailed they look great you know better than they've looked for people say wow you look wonderful well amazing you know do this and they start doing things and and the family members say what about me what about me yeah you know he didn't he didn't know what it was like for me he was out of it yeah and he didn't know what it was like for me and he he denied my experiences Mm. said it couldn't have been like that or it wouldn't have been like that and, and, and I think for me as well at the very beginning when when Kev first started going to meetings I was really quite jealous I was really quite jealous of him going to meetings 
and and sort of really speaking lovingly about these new people that he'd met and revealing himself to, to total strangers. And there's me at home thinking, and the resentments, I can't even begin to tell you, you know, so... It is, it is very real, Claire, you know, here they come, you know, there was the stranger, Wynne Parry, or, or one of the other councillors, Clee or Phil, all of those great people. And and the, the, the family member would say, I, I re I'm, you know, how come he's done it for you? How mm. come he's got wealthy? I've been asking him for 10 years. How, why has he done it for you? What's wrong with, and it's always that, what's wrong with me that he hasn't done it for me? And, you know, and it is not that he, he, he hasn't loved you, but we are not emotionally involved mm. as therapists with that person. You know, we can detach from it and be objective about it. And and and, and that's recognised, that's recognised in the addict, that they can't manipulate us. Mm. And that, that they can't deny what is being said. Because the facts are there, and they are sober then, mm. and we're sober, you know. So yeah. it's, a, it's a horrible place, you know, for the family member to say that that rejection that they, that they feel. Why, why couldn't they do that for me? Yeah. And and, and then and 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 for years they because the addict might have been telling them that they weren't the best wife or husband, and and that. You know, I wouldn't drink like this if it wasn't for you, if you weren't more this, 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 you know. So again, that erodes and they start to feel maybe, maybe I am not right. And they try to be better. Mm. Can you imagine that? They try mm. to be better. Mm. Yeah. Um, try to be more glamorous, try to be more attractive, try to be better cooked. As we're speaking, as we're speaking, I'm just um just for the sake of um the podcast listeners really is um I'm scrolling across the screen um Alanon, um Coanon and Famanon, who are great um family um family fellowships for the family. Cannot cannot recommend that and and endorse attendance at those fellowships. Uh, uh, enough uh, and wins uh, contact numbers uh for those there's been some messages um who who are knocked out by what you've been saying and want to get in touch uh jane tobias what an amazing lady want to meet her and speak to her for hours uh there yeah. is win parry's number is is under underneath there so if you need to get in touch with win uh i can guarantee you that um, she is the best in the business yeah and and you know if you want a starting point before i met win um you know she did play a massive part in changing both kev's and my life because you don't know what you don't know do you and you know unfortunately we'd been to the gp i don't know if it's different now win but back those 20 23 years ago when we started this journey GPs didn't know what to do with you. They didn't know where to send you. They didn't know that recovery existed. You know, that nobody had ever mentioned that there was therapists who specialised in this field. 
And I, and I do believe that, you know, literally it was by the grace of God that we came across you and you were working at, um, at the Priory at the time. And not just you, but obviously the other therapists were massively instrumental in transforming our lives, you know. So for those of you who are unsure, if you're a family member, if you're the person that's affected, it could be any type of addiction, honestly, just reach out. If you want a chat first you can speak to us we can connect you to win or you can ring win direct you know arrange a one-to-one with her you know she will speak the truth into your life could i just say that that if i'm not available to leave a message and i will get back to them absolutely of course. i will get back to them if i'm not just available at that moment yeah, okay. absolutely yeah if wins not if she doesn't answer straight away it means she's probably on a call doing a one-to-one with someone else but always leave a message um and she will always get back to you and her number is across the bottom of the screen at the moment and we will put it in our chat as well so you know if you if you miss if you can't see the screen we will put it um in text so you can read it so yeah so i i'd really just want to thank you win i mean honestly from the bottom of my heart you know we, not only were we blessed to have you as a professional initially come into our lives but then to go on years, years later to become a trusted dear friend of the family and, you know, a, a beautiful, just one of those people that just forever is in my heart. So I thank you from the bottom of my heart. Thank you for coming on this amazing little talk. I'm still not keen on her, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> I'm not, I, I just want to say, I want to put it on record that if it wasn't for Wim Parry, I wouldn't be sat here. I love her dearly. And we, we have been on a right old adventure together uh, through many, many things. We've we've actually been to rock and roll gigs together where I've played with, she's obviously come to my, uh, when we used to have a home in Spain, she came there and I have uh, Owen, a massive debt of gratitude and uh, I love her to bit. Yeah, and she saves many other people's lives and played many parts. Go on, Wim, what do you want to say? Can I just say that to have a, real, a friendship with an ex-patient is unusual, but because, you know, you just don't do that. But with Kevin, because of his vulnerability in the profession he was in, it, it was recognised that at times I would need to attend things with you, do you remember, early on, you know, uh, uh, and and you know if I wasn't of course it then in early recovery to be involved in things which was magic for me you know old rock chick you know it was great but at the beginning it was clinical reasons but then eventually it has become a dear friendship for me yeah I'm I mean proud of both of you. we're 22 years down the line and uh, you know you've played such a part in that and you know and like I say you, you've you've gone on to become a dear friend of ours um, and our children and our children yeah beautiful and and there's lots of comments Win Tierney said um Marie Tierney says Win saved me too I know there's lots of people that you know do oh their lives to you coming into their lives and, and I must say Claire you know this, this is it's lovely to hear people's gratitude and you know I, 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 every week I'll get someone ring and say I'm 29 years sober or I'm 30 years sober or whatever year it is you know and that's the only time I hear from them but 
that sense of where they started is important for their acceptance. But can you imagine the privilege it's been for me? Yeah. And how humbling it is for me. Yeah. Everything I've learned, you know, still learning from these fabulously beautiful people that I'm able to have such compassion for and have developed through them I've been able to develop strong compassion and empathy. What a gift I've got from what gifts I've received from it. You know. Well, thank you. So grateful. But thank you for the opportunity today. Yeah. And thank, thank you. you. Thank you for all you do for everybody that you come into contact with. Thank you for coming on this show. Thank you for just your wisdom and your beauty. So, please yeah. come back. Will you come back? Yeah, please come back. Yeah, I'll come back, yes. Of course I will. How can I resist that? Yes. Fabulous. Thank you so much, Win. Lots of love. And thanks, everybody, for having a listen. Send you a big a big hug, a big cyber hug. Absolutely. Hug. Wonderful. Wow, he doesn't give those away often. <laughs> and we'll see you all again soon. So thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye. Hi, I'm Matt. I'm one of our volunteer fundraisers here at Kennedy Street. Thanks for listening. Your support is greatly appreciated. Please do head over to our website, www.kennedystreetcio.org, for information on how you could be involved in future fundraising campaigns or how you can donate to this great cause.